There were barely six hundred British on the line of the Detroit when Hull first crossed over to Sandwich with twenty-five hundred men. These six hundred comprised less than hundred and fifty regulars, about three hundred militia, and some hundred and fifty Indians. Yet Hull made no decisive effort against the feeble little fort of Malden, which was the only defense of Amherstburg by land. The distance was nothing. Only twelve miles south from Sandwich, he sent a sort of frying column against it. But this force went no farther than halfway, where the Americans were checked at the bridge over the swampy little rivier or canals by the Indians under Tecumseh, the great war chief of whom we shall soon hear more. Hull's failure to take Fort Malden was one fatal mistake. His failure to secure his communications southward from Detroit was another. Apparently, yielding to the prevalent American idea that a safe base could be created among friendly Canadians without the trouble of a regular campaign, he sent off raiding parties up the Thames. According to his own account, these parties penetrated sixty miles into the settled part of the province. According to Brock, they ravaged the country as far as the Moravian town, but they gained no permanent foothold. By the beginning of August, Hull's position had already become precarious. The Canadians had not proved friendly. The raid up the Thames and the advance toward Amherstburg had both failed, and the first British reinforcement had already begun to arrive. These were very small, but even a few good regulars helped to discourage Hull, and the new British commander, Colonel Proctor of the 41st, was not yet to be faced by a task beyond his strength. Worse yet for the Americans, Brock might soon be expected from the east. The provincial marine still held the water line of communication from the south, and dire news had just come in from the west. The moment Brock had heard of the declaration of war, he had sent others post-haste to Captain Roberts at St. Joseph's Island, either to attack the Americans at Michelin Magalac or stand on his own defense. Roberts received Brock's orders on the 15th of July. The very next day, he started for Michelin Magalac with 45 men of the Royal Veterans, 180 French-Canadian voyagers, 400 Indians, and two unwieldy iron six-pounders. Surprise was essential to prevent the Americans from destroying their stores and the 
distance was a good fifty miles, but by the most unparalleled exertion of the Canadians who manned the boats, we arrived at the place of rendezvous at three o'clock the following morning. One of the iron six-pounders was then hauled up the heights, which rise to eight hundred feet, and trained on the dumbfounded Americans, while the whole British force took post for storming. The American commandant, Lieutenant Hanks, who had only thirty-seven effective men, thereupon surrendered without firing a shot. The news of this bold stroke ran like wildfire through the whole northwest. The effect on the Indians was tremendous, immediate, and wholly in favor of the British. In the previous November, Tecumseh's brother, known far and wide as the Prophet, had been defeated on the banks of the Tippecanoe, a river of Indiana, by General Harrison, of whom we shall hear in the next campaign. This battle, though small in itself, was looked upon as the typical victory of the dispossessing Americans. So the British seizure of Michigan-Mackinac was hailed with great joy as being a most effective counterstroke. Nor was this the only reason for rejoicing. Michigan-Mackinac and St. George's commanded the two lines of communication between the western wilds and the Great Lakes. So the possession of both by the British was more than a single victory. It was a promise of victories to come. No wonder Hull lamented this opening of the hive which let the swarms loose over the wilds on his inward flank and rear. He would have felt more uneasy still if he had known what was to happen when Captain Keat received his orders at Fort Dearborn, Chicago, on August 9. Hull had ordered Hilde to evacuate the fort as soon as possible and rejoin headquarters. Held had only 66 men, not near enough to overawe the surrounding Indians. News of the approaching evacuation spread quickly during the six days of preparation. The Americans failed to destroy the strong drink in the fort. The Indians got hold of it, became ungovernably drunk, and killed half of Held's men before they had gone a mile. The rest surrendered and were spared. Held and his wife were then sent to Mackinac, where Roberts treated them very kindly and sent them on to Pittsburgh. The whole affair was one between Indians and Americans alone, but it was naturally used by 
the war party to inflame American feeling against all things British. While Hull was writing to Fort Dearborn and hearing bad news from Mackinac, he was also getting more and more anxious about his own communications to the South. With no safe base in Canada and no safe line of transport by water from Lake Erie to the village of Detroit, he decided to clear the road which ran north and south beside the Detroit River. But this was now no easy task for his undisciplined forces, as Colonel Proctor was bent on blocking the same road by sending troops and Indians across the river. On August the 5th, the day Brock prorogued his parliament at York, Tecumseh ambushed Howe's 1st detachment of 200 men at Brownstown, 18 miles south of Detroit. On the 7th, Howe began to withdraw his forces from the Canadian side. On the 8th, he ordered 600 men to make a second attempt to clear the southern road. But on the ninth, these men were met at Maguaca, only 14 miles south of Detroit, by a mixed force of British regulars, militia, and Indians. The superior numbers of the Americans enabled them to press the British back at first, but on the 10th, when the British showed a firm front in a new position, the Americans retired discouraged. Next day, Hull withdrew the last of his men from Canadian soil, exactly one month after they had first set foot upon it. The following day was spent in consulting his staff and trying to reorganize his now unruly militia. On the evening of the 13th, he made his final effort to clear the one line left by sending out 400 picked men under his two best colonels, MacArthur and Cass, who were ordered to make an inland detour through the woods. The same night, Brock stepped ashore at Amherstburg. End of chapter 3 Recording by Andy Yu, Mississauga, Canada